Jesus, we consecrate everything we're about to do to you. We consecrate our hearts. We consecrate our minds. We consecrate our intellect and our memory and our understanding. Body and soul and spirit. We consecrate our studio and we consecrate this recording. We consecrate the way that the Holy Spirit fills it to our listeners. We consecrate this series. We bring it into your love and into the kingdom of God. We surround it with your love and your kingdom authority. Holy Spirit, come and fill all we are about to talk about. Jesus, in your name. Yes, God. Amen. Hey, friends, welcome to the Ransom Heart Podcast. John Eldridge in the studio this week with Morgan Snyder. Excited to bring to you a new series, a multi-part series. And the topic is the war that we find ourselves in, that any human being finds themselves in, but particularly that followers of Jesus find themselves in, we want to talk about spiritual warfare. We want to unpack it. We want to ground it in scripture. We want to explain it and dispel myths around it. But I got to start with last night. (laughs) How was your night last night, by the way? It was rough. It was rough. (laughs) I'm actually comforted to know that. Oh, thank you very much, I think. (laughs) Okay. So last night, first comes a, a bad dream. And it wasn't like super dark. It wasn't Stephen King. It wasn't, you know, horror film. But in this dream, it felt very real to me. I was, I was back in Washington, D.C., but we couldn't find housing. Stacey and I couldn't find a place to live, and I was supposed to be there to work again. And, and in the dream, it was just filled with accusation and poverty and deprivation. And you're not living well, and you never will. And, and then I woke up. I looked at the clock. It's 3.04, what many people will call the witching hour. 3 a.m. tends to be very suspect, and we'll explain that later in the series. But wake up, not to like imminent darkness in the room or anything, but I just wake up to condemnation. You suck at your life. This is your destiny. You just aren't going to make it. And the thing is, I think in years past, in my youth, if I hadn't known what was going on, I'd still be in that right now. Mm. I mean, that would be my story for at least the next day or the next couple days where you're just kind of internally battling accusation, diminishment, Mm -hmm. you know, you suck at your life, whatever various forms of condemnation different people live with. For me, it was this. and, And had I not known to sit up, pray, treat it as something that was not coming from me, not something even born in me, but something that was external to me, treat it as an attack coming against me from the outside, coming against me from our enemy, pray against it, love God, worship, declare the truth, and go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I was able to go back to sleep instead of being tormented with that for the next several days and just thinking it's true and then trying to break with it and try and figure my life out. Right, right. I mean, I hear you saying, John, something that you have to fight, you have to choose to engage, but you can prevail. You, you have tools 
authority, power, a skill set to prevail over that and get back to life. Something learned over time, something that's become incredibly helpful Mm. to us, enormously helpful. Yeah, John, similar for me, a different category, but my night last night really started the night before. So Sherry came to me and brought up a pretty contentious issue with an extended relative. So it was a relational miss where we believed that I had hurt someone we deeply care about. That is so booby Oh, And I'm sitting there, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is mission week, right? Our wives are headed off to captivating. And yet, I'm just being like sucked into this story of going, man, she's right. I blew it. Now, this is a very historic kind of relational dysfunction, but there was a flashpoint where I just missed, I missed the chance to handle her heart well. And where I went with it in the moment, being aware of my internal life, I first went to shame of crap. Why was I so quick to move forward and not pause and go, what is the implication Mm -hmm. of this? It was just an oversight, an act of omission. Mm -hmm. And then I went to dread of, this is one of those things you hear in family stories and systems that ends the relationship. You know, it's a small wound that festers, isn't handled, and it really brings the end of relationships. So, John, what I was feeling was this dread. And as you said, 20 years ago, I would have went, crap. Like, my sin has cost me a very dear relationship. But instead, still under shame, I had to choose a belief system against my feelings to know this is mission week. There's a lot of warfare around mission. We've been contending with the spirit of death, and one of the fruits of a spirit of death is dread and the end of things, particularly relationship. It's over. It's over. So I went, okay, Sherry, I know we seem to be at fault, and we may be in part, but also look at the fruit. This feels like war. Now, this took about 12 hours. We had to go to bed. I'd pray the next morning because I just was under it. But then as we prayed, we took authority and bound evil at work in this very real relational miss. And so I called my relative last night and I had a little bit of fear and trepidation of this could be the end of things. And it went phenomenal. There actually was very little hurt or misunderstanding. And I realized while there was some other thing going on, it was my sin, my omission, the vast majority of the situation was spiritual warfare. And once that was shut down, the relationship was actually furthered. And I went to bed last night being in a great place with this person. Right. And so we saw the gravity of the spiritual war in which we find ourselves. It's an essential category to interpret reality. Yeah. So this is lifetime, friends. (laughs) We have so many stories Mm. to tell. And to be hopeful, most of them are good stories. Most of them turn out well. They're not good at the beginning, but they turn out well. And so here's what we're going to do. Over a number of coming episodes, we're going to walk through the scriptures. We're going to walk through some personal experiences. We're going to walk through some historical things for the saints. And we're just going to bring this into the light and ground it for you in a really healthy worldview. And now, having said that, there's one other thing we do need to address by way of introduction of this. When I brought this up with you, Morgan, 
you had some concerns, and I feel like they're really valid, Mm -hmm. and we should unpack that for our listeners a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think our heart in this series is to get to core assumptions, to surface beliefs of how we operate in these categories. And John, as I reflect over my years of developing a category of spiritual warfare, one of the concerns was Scripture is very clear that there are kind of three categories that evil works against humanity, right? It talks about the world, the flesh, and the evil one. And I think what I want to name is we take very seriously and soberly all three. It's very true that there is the component where evil is expressed in a world system. We did a series on the world, and it's a it's a really helpful resource. And then the category of the flesh and the false self and the self-life, we take that very seriously and soberly. Oh my goodness, your sin and your brokenness it's together? Just, right, without addressing that. Is right? almost enough to undermine everything by itself. Exactly. And so I think it's important to articulate, it's not all warfare. And that's where I think the enemy trips a lot of people up is to say, oh, this isn't spiritual warfare. Well, that's true. It's not all warfare. Now, having said that, some things are. It's straightforward. Some things are not the world. Some evil is not coming from the flesh or sin. It's actually coming from evil through the form of spiritual warfare, evil spirits and curses and all, All the categories we'll things. get into, right? Yeah. And so I think for the listener, just to name, we have to give room for everything to not be warfare so that we can learn and mature in identifying what is spiritual so that we can fight against it and have victory. Um, you brought that up to me yesterday, you know, and said I, you have a concern about doing this series because, gang, what we've really discovered over a lot of years and a lot of hard but beautiful lessons is you want a holistic approach to life. You are body, soul, and spirit. And so when you encounter something like an anxiety disorder, you need to look at the body issues. You have neurochemical things that are going on there, but you're also a soul. And so you have history and you have story and you have woundedness and you are a spiritual being and you live in a spiritual world and the enemy loves to seize upon our weaknesses and And that's just another example of we want a holistic approach to our lives, to our relationships, to our work, to our hopes, to our dreams, to the life that we want and the life we want for those around us. So having said that, by way of prologue, welcome to part one. And what we want to say is this has been enormously helpful to us, understanding the world you live in, the characters on the stage, the theology behind it, I think is actually going to be really refreshing to you, not fearful or foreboding or a new level of pressure on your life, not at all. Something that actually leads to lovely freedom and joyful happiness. So we thought the very first, let's just get our theology kind of squared away. Let's start with the scriptures and ask ourselves, in terms of the Old and the New Testament, the scriptural worldview, who are the players on the stage? 
How did the ancient Hebrew world look at it? How did the New Testament look at it? How do we now as modern believers look at it? Who are the players on the stage? So if you start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the most important figure is introduced, and it's God. In the beginning, God, Mm. right? And so we start with a God-centric worldview, a Christ-centric worldview, a Trinity-centric worldview, more on all that as we go along. But you're introduced to God, and, and you are introduced to creation as the loving gift of God, something he creates for our enjoyment. And then very quickly in Genesis, still in chapter one, we are introduced to humanity, right? The sons and daughters of God, the image bearers of the living God, and those who have been given this incredible role in the world to care for it, to be creative, to be industrious, to do all the things human beings are created to do, you know, make music and draw maps and build buildings and become teachers of learning and knowledge and practicing medicine and all of that. Okay, so that's all built into that original introduction of rule and subdue, be fruitful and multiply. So God and humanity. And most people's worldview stops there. You can see that simply by how you interpret events. Mm. You know, last night, first I have this dream that takes me back to a very fatherless time in my life. And then I wake up feeling that kind of weak, younger man who felt very unable to handle his world. And then there's just a condemnation and the accusation that came with it. And most people stop there and they they don't ask who else is in the room? Who else is on the stage? Are there other characters on the stage and who are they? And How do they play out? But you get just two chapters more into Genesis. And of course, Genesis chapter three, we are introduced to, wait a second, there's actually someone else in the garden. Mm. There is this figure called the serpent, who in Hebrew theology, everyone knew immediately who they were talking about. This is Satan who comes in to wreak havoc on the human race and on the beauty of creation as well to strike back at God. And so suddenly you have, wait a second, here's a spiritual being that is not a human being, and he's not God, he's something else. Whoa, there's another character on the stage, and that begins to play out through the Old Testament. But let me jump to Revelation, because kind of the parentheses here, Genesis and Revelation, are kind of giving us a perspective of the players on the stage. It's very clear that in addition to human beings, and probably prior to human beings, were created the angels. And John has been transported into the throne room, into the presence of the living God in heaven by the Spirit. And he says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Revelation 5, 11. So you actually, whoa, hang on a second. There's these other beings in the universe. They're these spiritual beings. There's angels. There's something called the living creatures, something called the elders. Holy cow, there's a whole lot more going on here than just God and people trying to make life work. And if you just pause and do the math, you go 10,000 times 10,000, That's 100 million angels. Mm. Now, how you translate the Greek here can depend, and the the New Living has it thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and the message has it 
10,000 times 10,000 their number. But just to make the point, there's a lot of them. 100 million at least? Possibly, he was saying, that's all I could see. Mm. There was a lot there. Okay. What we also know from Revelation is that a company of those angels fell. There was at some point where some of these beautiful holy creatures of God rebelled against the living God and against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation 12, you're given a couple important details. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. This is, of course, the Christmas story from heaven's point of view. This is Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and all of that. This is, you know, away in a manger in Bethlehem on a starry night. This is what it looked like if you could just peel back the curtain and look at the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. So a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So this is Mary in her spiritual reality, right? A very significant player in the story, obviously. She was pregnant and cried out in pain and she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in the spiritual realm an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And many theologians believe that that is referring to apparently about a third of the company of once holy angels have at some point in the story, and we don't know chronologically exactly where all this took place, We'll try and help you with that as we go along in the series, but we're just getting the characters established. Some of these holy angels have become unholy angels. They have become demons or dark angels, fallen angels, foul spirits. And if you say, oh, wow, well, if there was a third of them, and when John was seeing the holy angels in the throne, when Christ is exalted, you know, there in Revelation chapter 5, 100 million was the two-thirds that were left, that means about... 50 million fallen angels. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a huge point about the math here. I'm simply saying the scripture is giving you a very robust cast of characters. Okay. It's not just God and people. It is this incredibly rich and diverse spiritual mm -hmm. world with holy angels and something called the living creatures in heaven and something called the elders. More on that in a later episode. And then we obviously clearly have Satan. You have the, the foul spirits. Revelation 12 goes on to say, you know, it calls him that ancient serpent, mm -hmm. the devil. Okay, so now we're back to clarity on Genesis 3. That was Satan there, the serpent. And so what you have is a worldview of God and his kingdom, these beautiful creatures, angels, holy angels, and the encouraging thing, folks, is lots more of them, <laughs> lots more of the resources. The yes. army of God is much bigger and more robust than the army of the evil mm -hmm. one. But you have an evil one. You have an evil commander, and he has an army, too, of fallen angels. And they are at war with each other, and they are at war with humanity. So moving on to the end of chapter 12 in Revelation, after the dragon tries to kill Jesus, which of course we saw take place with Herod and the massacre of the innocents, he fails 
and it further enrages him. And it says, then the dragon was enraged at Mary and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. So, whoa, we've got a very populated spiritual world interacting with humanity and actually making war against humanity. And I just want to pause and say, there are so many reasons why this is important, but just yesterday, I had a beautiful encounter with a a young man who doesn't yet know Christ, but is very, very close to coming to faith. And we were sitting in a coffee shop. He was riddling me with questions, and one of his questions was about the suffering in the world, right? It's the classic, how can you believe in God with such horrible things going on in the world, the terrorism and what ISIS did to women as they moved through Syria and I mean, just horrific, horrific stuff. Human trafficking, two million children trafficked into the sex trade every year. He's like, how? And I was able to share what I'm sharing with you now is that you must understand that you were born into a world at war. This isn't just you and God or God and humanity trying to make things work out. There is a host of characters on this stage some of them these beautiful, brilliant, powerful angels who are on your side, by the way, good to know, and some very powerful, dark characters, Satan, the evil one, the serpent, the dragon, and his army, very clearly making war on humanity. And as I was able to explain that to this young man, he just went, oh, like, oh, well, That's a different way of looking Mm -hmm. at things. It's not just God. So here's the worldview. We're just trying to establish who are the characters on the stage. And then, of course, you have the famous passage from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Yes, Jesus. Put on the full armor of God. Okay. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood wasn't against your relative. Right. Right. Though it feels like it is. Yep. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is it against these rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms? Now, more on that in a minute, but this is actually describing a whole realm of rank and office of these fallen angels that were once very powerful and beautiful. Well, they're still very powerful. But this is who we are at war against. And the scripture says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand or Mm -hmm. to be found standing, to be upright, to be okay, to not be taken out is the idea. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Pause. That's what I was getting hit with last night. The flaming darts of the evil one. These are Mm. actually real things. And they're very harmful and they're very hurtful if you don't raise the shield of faith against them. It You can really be hurt by this stuff. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Okay, so there it is, very clear, Genesis to Revelation and throughout the Scriptures, that the context is there is a dark kingdom that is making war against humanity. God and his kingdom and his wonderful creatures are here to help you, but you have a role. Mm. You are in the fight. Ephesians makes that very clear. You wouldn't be putting on armor if you weren't in the fight. And this also dispels, you know, more on this next week, but this dispels some of the bad theology about it isn't even your job to deal with evil. It's God's job, or you don't have to resist Satan. God will do that. Or just, you know, the title of a new book that's out is Let God Fight for You. And I want to say, yes, 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 of course, more on that. But clearly you do too. Or why would he be giving you arms of war, right? You are being armed for a kind of spiritual combat because the scripture is just assuming this is where we're at. So you were born into a world at war. Humanity is created to be the allies of God in his war against evil. Everyone who aligns with Jesus is especially at war. Because mm. at the end of Revelation, when Satan goes off to make war, it's particularly against the friends of Jesus. Okay. So let me make a little plug for a moment here before we go on. We have such hope and joy and breakthrough available to you in this series, but I don't want you to have to wait to episode three or four to get there. That's not even kind. So if you do not yet have the Ransomed Heart app, it's free. Please go to the app store, download it. In the app is a section on prayers. And friends, those prayers, there are prayers that are going to bring you such relief prayers for the morning, prayers for the evening, prayers when dark things are coming at you, prayers when dark people are coming against you, just really helpful Mm. stuff. So I can't leave you wondering, when's the good news? Like, when are you going to help me with this stuff? What we want to do as we move along is very, very slowly and carefully establish the theology behind this. Mm. This isn't just John and Morgan's view of the world. This isn't just Ransomed Heart's take on things. You can't hold to the validity of Scripture and not have this as your worldview. This is so deeply intertwined in Scripture, literally from the first chapter to the last book of the Bible and all in between. We live in a very populated universe, and all kinds of different creatures and beings are interacting with humanity every day. And it's super helpful to know that and super helpful to like get this grounded in scripture and get this grounded in your take on reality. So what we want to do next is go into the gospels Mm -hmm. and look at how this played out in the life of Jesus. Yeah, John, I really just appreciate you naming both the scope and the power of the spiritual world. It's just a good reminder, right? You just, you're taking me back. I mean, where my heart's going is epic. It's been a long time since I've been in that book and that video series, but I mean, you are just touching into categories that you go pretty deeply in that resource. And, and I'm going back to your teaching in the larger story, this last boot camp, which is captured in the Platinum Collection. But in this boot camp, particularly, I remember you saying that Adam created in the image of the living God and without sin. Or brokenness. Or brokenness. Or parents to screw him up. Right, or a broken world, right? He's in the Garden of Eden with his truest companion, right? Eve herself. And in that atmosphere, there is a power great enough 
to tempt him to make a choice to choose evil. Yeah. Like, it just puts it in perspective to yeah. go, okay, this is very real. Yeah, I always used to rip on Abin and Eve and just go, thanks a lot, guys, you know, <laughs> for getting us in this train wreck. But it does give you a healthy appreciation for the other characters on the stage if it was enough to convince the son and daughter of God, small s, small d, the sons and daughters of God to fall for it, right? It just gives you a healthy appreciation. Now, what's really cool, though, is that when I wanted to understand this for myself, I just flipped open the Gospels and I just started reading through the Gospels and go, okay, Jesus is my North Star. Jesus is my benchmark. What was this like for him? Right, taking that context and going into Jesus' life, you open the Gospel of Mark. I mean, this is beautiful. And just a side note, so the first time, John, you ever began to open this category to me on Jesus' worldview and the reality of the supernatural realm It was October 1998. I will never forget it. And I left the classroom. And the next day I took this Bible and opened up the Gospel of Mark at Rocky Mountain National Park to the first page. And I said, this stuff's kind of freaking me out. This is not my category. I've never heard this before. I'm a little trepidatious in believing it. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the Gospel and just start Mark chapter 1. And Jesus, I'm going to ask you to reveal who you are on your own terms, not even through John Eldridge. Jesus, I lay down my presuppositions. Show me your life, because if I want to have the life that you have, I have to hold to the beliefs in which you live your life. So I sat down with Mark chapter 1. So it's fun just today to open back up to Mark chapter 1 and looking at Jesus's life You know, in Mark, it begins with his baptism, this immersion into the reality of the Trinitarian God that that John, you you know, you name that we find in Genesis 1. And then it says the real action comes next. And it begins with the Father speaking to the Son, words of validation, Mm -hmm. words of love. You Mm -hmm. are my Son. You're chosen. You're marked by my love, the pride of my life. So it begins with love. It begins with the God-centered view, right? Yes. And then the very next breath, it says, the Spirit, the same Spirit, pushed Jesus out into the wild. And for 40 wilderness days and nights, he was tested by the evil one. And so on the very heels of being validated and loved by his father at the very core of his ministry, Jesus's life begins with 40 days of hand-to-hand combat with evil in which he suffered greatly but was able to prevail because of his deeply rooted life in his father. Mm -hmm. I think it's just important to name. That's, That's his reality. And then it goes on. John and I were reflecting on this story earlier this morning. So now his ministry, his mission begins, and he steps in to Capernaum, and it's the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 1, it goes on at verse 21, that Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. So you picture your average Sunday morning at a fellowship, and the people were amazed at his teaching because he was one who taught with authority. And so already you see it's not just creativity, it's not just gifting but Jesus is operating in some spiritual power and authority. And just then, in the middle of his teaching, in the synagogue, a man cries out. So a man bursts in, interrupts, and he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Now, what the scripture says is this man was possessed with an impure spirit, but all the people see on a human stage is a man interrupting a sermon and yelling at Jesus. And he goes on to say, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so in this moment, here's what we see Jesus doing, his first public act in his mission. He speaks strongly and loudly, be quiet in a stern voice. And he says, come out of him. And the scripture says in verse 26, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And so friends, just pause here. What's so fascinating is Jesus is not speaking to the man. So picture yourself in the scene in this synagogue where Jesus very sternly speaks to an unseen and unnamed presence inside this man. Right. Right. And then in that authority, as he speaks violently, the spirit comes out of him with a shriek. Yes. And then he's well. That's the beautiful thing. Yes. There's a number of these encounters that Jesus does this for people, sets them free from foul spirits so that they can be well. They can be a sound mind again. Their hearts can be well. And it goes on. Like Jesus leaves the synagogue and it says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So here you have the mom of a friend who is ill, physically ill. So Jesus went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And so friends, It's hard for me to name this because I'm finding myself where I was 20 years ago. It's incredulous going, what? I I don't know if that's the worldview I want, right? right? That's messy, shrieking and violence. And it's things aren't what they appear to be. And yet this is the world in which we were created. And that must be for a reason. And so what we find in the gospels in Jesus's coronation at the heels of his validation his first series of interactions to bring love, to be God incarnate, required identifying evil spirits, standing in the authority, the power of the kingdom, and casting out the spirits with the whole goal of bringing healing and bringing life. And what cracks me up is you're not even out of Mark chapter one yet. I mean, you can't, you can't escape this in the scriptures. It's not hidden. It's not kind of vague allusions to evil or poetic metaphors. It's very clear. It's very obvious. Kingdom of God is invading the world through Jesus Christ. And pardon the expression, but all hell breaks loose. Right. Right. Because here now is the advancing son of God with his army coming into the world that was taken captive by evil, to take it back right. and to free people, to make people whole and well. And it's not a verse here or there in the Gospels. 
These are three different encounters that are named in the opening chapter of Mark 1. And then you, you go on. I mean, right. you know, through the rest of the gospel, there's a ton of this. And then this carries right on into the rest of the New Testament, which I think is also very important for people's theology and worldview. This wasn't just something for Jesus to deal with. Uh, you get into the book of Acts and Paul now, who is not a member of the Trinity, and he's just a guy, and he's not the Son of God, now has to deal with it as well. And in Acts chapter 16, it reads like this, once we were going to the place of prayer, this is Luke narrating the story, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now pause, and you wonder, why in the heck would a demon follow Paul and Luke and the rest of them around saying, hey, this is the true gospel. Well, because you know one wingnut does far more damage to Christianity than a hundred atheists, right? It's the nut job. It's the guy on the corner with the, with the cardboard you know, sign shouting at people who pass by. That does far more damage to people's belief in the goodness and the beauty of Christianity. So she's She's messing up the show. In other words, they're, they're trying to go about this with love and kindness and humility, and she's trying to make a circus out of it, or the demon is. And so here's how Paul deals with it. it says, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So here you have the collision of the kingdoms, not just in the life of Jesus, not just in, you know, the wild narrative of Revelation, but right here in the ordinary life of the unfolding church, examples after examples of the need for this. And you get on into the book of James and the book of First uh, Peter. In James 4, 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Not just tempt, not just poke at, not get them to eat a second donut. Lions maul people. This is to maul you. And Peter goes on to say, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So again, the biblical worldview is this is everybody, your family all around the world, all the believers of the world are undergoing this, right? This is the collision of the kingdoms. There is a highly populated world all around you of beautiful, wonderful, holy creatures and dark, fallen creatures who are not just at war with each other, but at war with humanity, and particularly at war with the friends of Jesus. And you play this incredibly beautiful role central to the fight. You're told to armor up, you know, get ready, because you're going to be in the thick of this. And very clearly in Scripture, you're told to play your part, to resist the evil one actively not to bury your head in the sand, not to pretend this is a theology for someone else, go, no, this is just sound, simple, biblical theology. 
and you have a very central role in it. So I think in closing episode one here, I think the question we just want to ask is, so is this normative for you? When things go wrong, when dreams are unrealized, when relationships blow up, when stuff happens, is this part of your interpretive worldview? Not the only part. There are always other things at play also. But I think the most critical thing is when you don't allow this as a central part, both of your interpretation of your life and your story and and events around you, and you don't allow this to be a central part of how you deal with your world. Morgan, what happens? What's the underlying thing there? It's interesting, John. I've actually given that a lot of thought because I was the guy 20 years ago that this was brand new. And I had walked with God for five years before that. And in the faith expression I came to Christ in, I mean, this was a no-go category. And so as I put myself in the seat of what was the impact, and one of the places I quickly go to is, if it's not a normal operating category, it feels like what gets introduced is a sort of doubt. There's a questioning, right? Because evil has to come from somewhere, like that young man that you had lunch with, right? How do you, what, how do you explain human trafficking? And so I watch my heart and realize, okay, when I don't have this category, that doubt calls into question the most central relationships in the human experience. My relationship with myself, I begin to doubt myself and the goodness of God's image in me, right? I doubt God and the goodness of his heart. I begin to doubt and question the hearts of other people. And here's the damage of that is we stake our life on the fundamental belief and confidence in the goodness of God's heart, right? Everything hinges on the goodness of his heart and the care of his heart towards us. And when we don't have this category, it erodes our confidence in that. And as soon as those lines get gray, we we lose our footing to walk in the authority that we're given and walk in union with God. And so, It's very hopeful for me to have a category where evil is very real because it allows me to have a truer picture of my own heart, of the heart of God, and the hearts of all the people uh, who bear the image of God in my story. Yep, yep. And I'm thinking here suddenly about movies. And friends, you can now look at all the movies you love and see it there. You can't write a good story without the battle of good and evil. It, it just doesn't exist. It's boring, right? We all went to the beach. We had a wonderful day and came home. I mean, it's a really <laughs> short movie. Something has to happen. Something has to go wrong. Humanity has to rise up. People have to choose to get involved, you know, and change things. And there's almost always some evil figure in it. And the reason why all those stories, whether it's Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings or you know, good grief, sense and sensibility in the Jane Austen movies, there's always an evil figure. Why? Well, well, because there is in our story. And there is in the story that God's telling. And this is such good news. It's just, it's just going to be so helpful as we unpack this. So let me, again, encourage you, if you haven't gotten the Ransomed Heart app, download it, get into the section on prayers, begin to just enjoy the fruit of those prayers. And then we'll be back 
with a whole lot more to unpack here and, and to give you some real clarity and some real tools for more breakthrough in your life.